Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 181 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. Recording this in the afternoon on December 20th, uh, just because of some scheduling conflicts. So Just a couple days left in the calendar year. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's uh, crazy that we're already near the end of... 2022, but I think uh, there's a lot of people that are fine leaving this year behind us. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track, and these numbers are as of the market close on December 19th. S&P 5, and excuse me, this data is from YCharts, as always. S&P 500 index is down 6.5% for the month and down 20% for the year. Dow Jones Industrial Average down 5.3% for the month and down 10% for the year. NASDAQ Composite Index down 8% for the month and down 32.6% for the year. The Russell 2000 Index down 8.2% for the month and down 22.7% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 4% for the month and down 18.7% for the year. Uh, Three-month Treasury rate sitting at 4.37%, the two-year Treasury rate at 4.25%, and the 10-year Treasury rate at 3.57%. Moving on to big headlines and current events from the past week, Matt. Um, Obviously, there were intensified fears over the rising interest rates, um, you know, pushing the S&P 500 lower uh, for the first two weeks of the month uh, into levels that we haven't seen in early November. Uh, In addition to that, the European Central Bank raised its key interest rate by 0.5 percentage points to 2%, uh, and the downturn in Eurozone business activity continued for a sixth consecutive month in December, uh, which was according to preliminary results from a survey of Purchasing Managers Index. So anything on that list that you want to discuss further? No, I just think the the weakness, uh, you know, so far this month... um I think it's more technical than it is the reason of rising interest rates. And I just think that that's been so widely telegraphed. Usually the reason is is not the most obvious one, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. And when I say the term technical, you want to remind our listeners and viewers what I mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the S&P 500 on a chart and you draw a trend line from the top that was made earlier this year to where we are now, you know, if you draw that trend line, you know, prices have moved up to that trend line at several different times throughout the year, but it's always gotten rejected. It's failed to get over that trend line, right? that downward trend. Right, exactly. I think that's what's going on with a lot of things right now. And, you know, we all know if uh, history repeats itself at some point, whether it's a week from now or three months from now or whatever time period, it'll most likely get back over that trend line. Right. Just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. First thing I had was a snippet from Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. Um, So I think this is kind of the perfect time to talk about 
compounding in the markets, Matt. Yeah. With it being such a weak year, I think it's easy for people to think that <clears throat> or to remember that it takes time to compound wealth. And, you know, what we witnessed over the past two years in the market isn't what I would call a normal environment, meaning, you know, the, the very quick, rapid rise of markets uh, within a one and a half, two year period after COVID, right? That's not, that usually doesn't happen. Correct. Right. Um, so Morgan said, compounding only works if you can give an asset years and years to grow. It's like planting oak trees. A year of growth will never show much progress. 10 years can make a meaningful difference. And 50 years can create something absolutely extraordinary. But getting and keeping the extraordinary growth requires surviving all the unpredictable ups and downs that everybody inevitably experiences over time. We can spend years trying to figure out how Buffett achieved his investment returns, how he found the best companies, the cheapest stocks, and the best managers. That's hard. Less hard, but equally as important, is pointing out what he didn't do. He didn't get carried away with debt. He didn't panic sell during the 14 recessions he's lived through. He didn't sully his business reputation. He didn't attach himself to one strategy, one worldview, or a passing trend. He didn't burn himself out, quit, or retire. He survived. The survival game, or excuse me, survival gave him longevity, and longevity, investing consistently from age 10 to at least age 89, is what made compounding work wonders. That single point is what matters most when describing his success. No one wants to hold cash during a bull market. They want to own assets that go up a lot. You look and feel conservative holding cash during a bull market because you become acutely aware of how much return you're giving up by not owning the good stuff. Say cash earns 1% and stock returns are 10% a year. That 9% gap will gnaw at you every day. But if that cash prevents you from having to sell your stocks during a bear market, the actual return you earn on that cash is not 1% a year. It could be multiples of that because preventing one desperate ill-timed stock sale can do more to your lifetime returns than picking dozens of big-time winners. Compounding doesn't rely on earning big returns. Merely good returns sustain uninterrupted for the longest period of time, especially in times of chaos and havoc, will always win. Great piece. Great piece. Yeah, it's really good. And he's, you know, Morgan's kind of on the behavioral investing side of things. Um, and that book that came out, I haven't read the whole thing yet. It's called The Psychology of Money, uh, getting raving reviews. But again, I think, you know, for people, especially if you just got started in 2022, you're like, oh, this is what in, <laughs> this is what investing is. Yep. And, it, you know, just bringing it back that this stuff takes time, things will get better. Um, but right now is just, you know, one of those tough periods that we experience every couple of years. Well said. Uh, moving on to a blog post from Ben Carlson titled, How Often is the uh, Market Down in Consecutive Years? Oh, this will be good. Yeah. So he has a, uh, three graphics that we'll have Jenna throw up on uh, the YouTube video, and they'll be in our show notes as well. Uh, the first graphic here, Matt, is uh, a bar chart of the S&P 500 from one year to the next from 1928 to 2021. And it shows four different outcomes uh, for the S&P 500. Okay. So first is, you know, the S&P 500 being positive two years in a row. Okay. That tends to happen 55% of the time. Those aren't bad odds. It's not bad odds at all. Uh, 
two years where uh, the S&P 500 is up in one year and down in the next year only happens 18% of the time. Okay. Uh, and then vice versa, uh, S&P 500 is down one year, the next year it's up. That also happens 18% of the time. But the really interesting thing is, is the point I want to get across of this, Matt, is that uh, one year of losses followed by another consecutive year of losses is very rare since 1928. So that happens only about 9% of the time. Very uncommon um, in comparison to the other data sets. Correct. And this next chart, you're going to see um, that, you know, yearly returns that have losses cluster at certain times, but it's really not that often that it yeah. happens. So from 1929 to 1932, the, the S&P 500 was down four years in a row. From 39 to 41, it was down three years in a row. Um, from 2000 to 2002, it was down three years in a row. From 73 to 74, it was down two years in a row. But those are really the only times that losses have clustered together. So I'm not saying it can't happen because it definitely has in the past, but I'm just throwing it out there that it's it's very rare. Yeah, in the early 2000s, you only had the dot-com, but you also had 9-11. There are multiple events working against the, I guess, the normal statistics at that point. Yeah. My only other observation on this is, uh, remember when I started in the business in 99, people were still complaining about the brokers in the office, still complaining about how tough 1994 was <laughs> with the interest rate hiking cycle and the S&P was up 1%. Yeah. And then well, what's interesting <laughs> is the next five years were incredible. Yeah. In 95, S&P 500 was up 37%. 96, it was up 22 97, 33, 98, 28, 99, almost 21 and they were still complaining about 94. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's Yeah, from 91, from 1991 to 1999, S&P 500 was positive Bull every single year. Market. Wow. Crazy. Uh, yeah, that's a really good chart. If people want to see what sustained bull markets look like, you know, look at 91 to 99, 09 to 17, uh, 82 to 89, you know, Several, several years of consecutive gains, which well, we well, saw in the well previous done, yeah. chart. Yeah. And then last but not least, consecutive down years in the bond market are even more infrequent than the stock market. We'll have Jenna throw this up as well, but it shows the 10-year Treasury annual returns from 1928 to 2022. Um, the only times that we've had consecutive negative years in the bond market were 55 to 56, 58 to 59, in 2021 to 2022. Look back to 1928. There is not a year that is worse than 2022. Yeah. For the returns for the 10-year treasury. And just to throw this out there, the previous time we've had consecutive negative returns uh, for bonds, in 55 and 56, 57, bonds were up almost 7%. And then when they were negative in 58 and 59, bonds were up uh, almost 12% in 1960. So Those are abnormal bond returns, given the sell-offs doesn't surprise me, but that's not the returns you normally see in bonds. Yeah, absolutely. And then even just looking at like the down years for bonds is typically followed by pretty good gains. I mean, 94, bonds were down 8%, and 95, they were up 23.5%. Wowzers. So again, I think people could be shocked by, by the performance of, of bonds. And last week I talked about an article that, you know, 
kind of explains what setup you need for a bad year in bonds and what setup you need for a good year in bonds. And I think, you know, in my opinion, over the next decade, this is probably a, a pretty generational buying opportunity in bonds for the long term, I would think. It's interesting you bring this up, Mr. McEvely. Got a little piece on this? I have a couple a pieces bit? on this topic. Okay. All right. Man, great minds think alike. You ready for me? Uh, got I got one more? one more thing. All right, you go. Um, really quick uh, for my new favorite uh, follow on Twitter is car dealership guy. He, he's a good hot real-time barometer indicator for me. Yeah, he is. He's great. And this one, this Twitter thread is a little longer, so bear with me here. Please. Um, he says this, and this was on December 16th, he tweeted this in the morning. He said, this morning I discovered something extremely alarming happening in the car market, specifically in auto lending. I'm now convinced there's uh, going to be a massive wave of car repossessions coming in 2023. Here's what I discovered and what no one knows. Over the past two years, many people took out exorbitant loans on cars. Car values were inflated, uh, but many people simply had no choice and bought an overpriced car. Well, Car valuations are now plummeting. Some cars have declined in value as much as 30% year over year. And these same people that took out these big loans are now underwater. Basically, they owe banks more on the cars than they are worth, than the cars are worth, that is. And the banks are well aware of this, but there is no easy solution. You can't just put the genie back in the bottle. This brings me to what happened this morning. Every Friday, I conduct a team meeting to recap our week. This morning, one of our general managers opened up DealerTrack, which is a portal that dealers use to communicate with auto lenders, and highlighted something very concerning. Nine of our lending partners have started waiving what they call open auto stipulations for consumers. Wait, WTF does that even mean? Let me explain using a simple hypothetical scenario. Consumer takes out an auto loan in 2020 or 2021 on an overvalued car. 2022 comes around and that overvalued car is now rapidly declining in value. Mm -hmm. With the car declining in value, consumer now owes more on the car than it's worth. Consumer no longer wants the car. Maybe they, out they outgrew it or maybe it keeps breaking, so consumer wants to trade it in. But dealer can't trade the car in because the consumer owes way too much on it. They're underwater. Correct. So the dealer asks consumer for a lot of money to cover the difference. But of course, the consumer doesn't have thousands to cover the difference between what they owe on the car and what it's worth. And here comes the perfect storm. Dealer can't sell consumer a car, consumer can't buy a car, and you guessed it, lender can't finance a car. Everybody loses. So what happens next? Lender knows that most consumers are stuck in this situation and does the following. They waive the open auto stipulation, meaning the lender lets the consumer buy the car knowing that they already have an open auto loan with another bank. Why the F would they do this? Surely the lender knows the consumers that take out a second auto loan are much riskier and have much higher risk of default, right? Yes, but the lender does it because they know the consumer will default on the car, on the other car. It's a dog eat dog style. Uh-huh. So their lenders they won't are... Be the, they won't, it won't be the same lender. You watch. Right. Yeah, lenders are giving these loans out because they know they're going to default on the other loan because that, that bank's away. not on the, on the hook for They're it. not underwater as much. So they're, you know, 
for lack of a better term, the banks or the lenders are screwing each other. Oh, my goodness gracious. It is. Yeah, that's crazy. So, um, again, I, I know it's not totally linked to financial markets, but I thought that that was just really interesting because, you know, car prices had this rapid They've rise, been out of last couple right, years. Uh, you know, because of COVID and, and the supply chain. And now, you know, that pendulum, just like everything else that we've discussed this year, is starting to swing the other way. And car prices are, are rapidly, rapidly declining. Yes. So it's going to be interesting to see. But if you're in the market for a car, I would just say be careful, do your due diligence, do your research before you pull the trigger on anything because it's a very interesting environment for cars right now. The other aspect is cars, after all these hurricanes with water damage, be mindful of that aspect right. too. Right. Yeah. Now I'll turn it over to you. All right. Well, my first piece is a rare overweight in bonds. And just to have a little, maybe a little round table with you on this, Mark. This is a tweet by uh, Mr. Blockland. He's the founder of True Insights, which is an investment research firm. And this uh, tweet was from December 19th, pretty fresh, okay? And this is what uh, was said. Quote, a rare overweight in bonds. Global fund managers are overweight bonds for the first time since April. My comments on what to make of this, uh, he says below. Uh, ultimately, it's a chart going back to the year 2001. It's the Bank America uh, Global Fund Manager Survey, which we've mentioned from different times in the past. When you look at this chart, and Jenna will put it up uh, for our YouTube viewers, it'll be under our um, social media for our traditional podcast listeners, you're going to find out very quickly that when you look at this chart going back to 01, people were overweight dramatically bonds in March of 09. Mark, what happened in March of 09? Market bottomed, didn't it? Market bottomed. It had a significant rally off of this. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of look at this from a contrarian standpoint that, you know, when people are really, really um, underweight bonds, probably a pretty good time to buy them. Mm -hmm. And then when you see, you know, them to be so overweight in comparison to stocks, you might want to tend to overweight the other asset class. Mm -hmm. This to me is a little bit of a contrarian indicator. What's your thoughts? Yeah, well, I, you know, the I... I alluded to when I was talking about it that now might be a, a good time for bonds or yeah, I'm not against bonds it could have yeah, I'm know, not against them I'm just saying and, in relation and, and, and I think I want to get this out of the way too is that <clears throat> stocks and bonds can go up together right yes. we've seen them go down together so this it doesn't year. it doesn't necessarily mean that you know, if stocks are up, bonds have to be down or bonds are down stocks have to be up it's a net neutral equation correct so um, I think it would not surprise me you know uh, you know, past performance, not indicative of future results. Got to get that out there from a compliance standpoint. It wouldn't surprise me, though, next year if they were both up. Yeah, wouldn't me surprise me. So here's my next thing that's bond related. Um, something called the Fed Funds Futures Implied Rate. The source of this is Charles Schwab on December 19th in one of their research notes. I'm going to start by reading this, quote, The Federal Reserve continues to hike short-term interest rates and signal that it plans to keep rates high throughout 2023. But the financial markets are not convinced. Despite consistent messaging from the Fed that it plans to hike and hold throughout 2023, the futures market is pricing in rate cuts late in the year. Now, Jenna's gonna put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This is a chart that was in this piece. The source that Charles Schwab was using here was Bloomberg. And it shows a chart of the market uh, the Fed Funds Implied Rate. 
and something that a lot of people might hear in the news, Mark, the term, uh, the terminal rate, which would be the peak rate that people are expecting rates to get at. Mm -hmm. The reason I thought this chart is useful is it gives our listeners and viewers a graphical representation of, in essence, where interest rates are and what the market is pricing in right now based upon the futures market. And I'll read this last paragraph and then we can have a mini roundtable about it. Quote, um, the diverging views about policy suggest that investors have more faith than the Fed itself in the Fed's ability to rein in inflation. The inverted yield curve and low readings for implied inflation expectations in the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities Market, or TIPS, suggest that investors anticipate slowing growth and easing pricing pressures in the first half of 2023. Falling commodity prices, a weakening housing market, and a slowdown in manufacturing point to disinflationary forces already at work. But the prospects for future foreign demand are also weak given how both developed and emerging markets continue to struggle with the sheer spike in energy cost. So again, you know, the Fed's like, yeah, we're going to get interest rates up there and we're going to hold them there the whole year. And the futures market, the real money's like, mm, we think you're going to start lowering sometime the second half of next year. Yeah. Your initial thoughts on this topic. It's just, I mean... It just goes to show that people don't trust the Fed and <laughs> with what they say, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it was in the beginning of 2022 or at the end of 2021, 18 of the 20 Fed officials said that they didn't see interest rates going above 2% at any point during 2022. And look what happened. There you go. Right? Yep. So, um, again, it, it doesn't make sense to me why you know the fed always says we're going to do this we're going to do this we're going to do this it's just like you just have to you have to be transparent and just say hey we're open to changing course data like depending on the data right yeah um instead of saying hey we're definitely not hiking rates or excuse me cutting rates in 2023 and then you just pigeonhole yourself and eventually you get to the point where you need to then you just have like there's no transparency there yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I'm more inclined to trust the futures market because it's the actual participants in the market. Well said. That's where, um, that's where, my, that's where I was going. So you've already, you know, rather than just what's what's coming out of the mouths of, of Federal Reserve officials. So I just thought it was kind of neat to look at this and kind of look at what they're pricing in from an implied rate, what the terminal rate is. Um, I found it interesting. Yeah. And again, just it's another data point that goes to show you that, you know, some of the smartest financial minds supposedly in the country were wrong about interest rates this year. Absolutely. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the last thing I got talking about Fed hikes is some raw research from Bespoke Investment Group on December 16th, Mark. What happens to the S&P 500 index after the last Fed hike during a cycle, right? So next, Jen is going to put this chart up for our YouTube viewers. Again, this will be available in all of our social media, Mark, for our traditional podcast viewers. And what it shows is going back to all their data sets to 1928 on the S&P 500, after the last Federal Reserve hike in interest rates, on average, three months later, the S&P is up 8.2%. Six months later, it's up 12. And one year later, on average, it's up 24.2%. Wow. Noteworthy, 
in the last couple of cycles, 2000 peak, 2006 peak, 2018 peak, the returns uh, the following year were less than all those. Uh, but I think given the dramatic rise in rates and the pain that equities have endured because of it, wouldn't surprise me if you know some of these numbers, if we had a little bit of reversion to the mean a little bit, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Anything's possible. Yeah. But I thought putting some raw numbers behind it was was kind of fun. Yeah, I think it and it just you know kind of goes with the the seasonality that we've talked about throughout the year, and that you know after the the Federal Reserve gets to their terminal rate, which you know they're apparently thinking that's going to be in the first quarter next year yeah february or march um and then you know with the third year of a presidency tending to be historically strong uh obviously we're going to end the year unless there's a christmas miracle down in 2022 um we just talked about how it's not very likely that there's two year two consecutive years that the s&p 500 loses money um so there's just a i don't know just a lot of data coming together that could set up for a surprisingly for a lot of people, I think for investors that don't that don't do this every day um, or just get news on on mainstream financial media it could set up for a surprisingly good year next year could I'm in the same exact boat I agree so absolutely agree um, all right before well, we transition over uh, to Taylor for the financial planning topic of the week mark is there anything that you want to end with no I don't think so uh, we start the Santa Claus rally on Friday uh, so that'll be telling to see if Santa comes or not um, uh, I'm, I'm gonna tell Santa I have uh, I got milk and cookies out I got gin <laughs> I got brandy I got scotch I'm gonna have like a plethora of picnic beginning on friday for santa yeah i wonder i wonder what type of alcohol what type of booze santa likes these days gin martini no vermouth there you go <laughs> set it out for him see if he drinks it <laughs> all right everybody will be i will be back uh, next week all right thanks mark all right next up is our financial planning topic of the week one of our fan favorites uh taylor ledbetter is going to lead this segment of the podcast welcome taylor Good to be back three weeks in a row. Three weeks in a row. We're keeping the trend going. I like it. So what do you have for our listeners and viewers this week, Taylor? Yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about most common retirement regrets. Okay. And I found this article on Motley Fool. Good site. And the data I'm going to share is from Clever Real Estate. Okay. So they do research in real estate and personal finances, things like that. Neat. Okay, I'm looking forward to this. So in November of 2021, they surveyed 1,000 retired Americans, and each respondent answered about 20 questions related to their financial situation, retirement preparations, um, financial planning, things like that. Yes. And one of the most common regrets that people talked about was waiting too long to start saving. So this article said that nearly half of all retirees surveyed said they regretted waiting so long to begin saving for retirement. When you're young, other priorities can seem more pressing than retirement, which could be 30 to 40 years away. But many people don't realize they're actually making their goals much more difficult by putting off retirement savings. Yes. Ideally, our personal retirement contributions which we set aside out of our paychecks, 
make up a small fraction of our total nest egg in retirement. Mm -hmm. The bulk of our life's savings should come from investment earnings, which we get from investing our personal contributions in stocks that we later sell for a profit. Typically, if you've invested wisely, you'll end up with more earnings by holding on to your investments longer. If you hold them for a short period of time, there's less opportunity for growth. In particular, stocks can be volatile in the short term, which is why it usually only makes sense to invest in them if you don't plan to spend the money within the next five to seven years. Yeah, I like the kind of the, the, the five to seven years kind of explanation because that's what I kind of think is, what's a normal market cycle? A really good year, a bad year, an average year. You know, when you have that kind of time horizon, everything kind of seems to average out. Is that a good way of saying it, Taylor? Yep, exactly. And a lot of times I'll get questions on, oh, when should I start getting more conservative? And everyone's different, yep. but I always think at least five or so years out, depending on the person. Of retirement. Mm -hmm, yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the second most common regret was investing too conservatively in their youth. This will be interesting. Mm-hmm. About a third of the retirees that Clever surveyed said they'd wish they'd invested more in high-risk, high-reward investments like stocks when they were younger. This makes sense because when you're young, you can afford to take more risk. And if your investments do poorly in the short term, that's not always a big deal because you may not need to use that money right now. Mm -hmm. Often your stocks will recover in time and you'll earn a profit for the long term. Investing too conservatively isn't as bad as taking too much risk, but just like putting off retirement savings, it forces you to set aside more money for retirement because you can't count upon earnings as much. Personal observation, I'm seeing a greater number of younger individuals more conservatively invested than not. Mm -hmm. And I think it is maybe a little bit of the sign of the times. You know, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the mindset is, hey, I'm working my tail off for this money. You know, I don't want to lose it. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, you know, there needs to be more of a mindset of this money is for that goal. It has a different time horizon. Mm -hmm. This is my emergency money. I am going to keep that out of the market, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. But I, I, what's your opinion on that? Because I'm seeing that more often than not. No, I, I see that a lot too. And when I get questions about investing in general over this topic, I explain to them why. You know, it's okay to be really aggressive if you're really young. And I would say 50% of the time, people will understand after I explain that. Yep. But then maybe the other 50%, people still get really nervous. So I think sometimes there might be a disconnect or just lack of knowledge, fear, things like that. I agree with you. Agree with you. So the last uh, most common regret I have is dipping into retirement funds. So tapping into your retirement savings early may ease some short-term financial problems, but it can create much bigger headaches over the long term. You'll have to save more money going forward to get back on track, which can be challenging if your budget is too tight. 
Plus, you'll have to pay taxes on your withdrawals from tax-deferred retirement accounts, like a 401k or an IRA, and you will also have that 10% early withdrawal penalty yep. if you're under 59 and a half. Whenever possible, consider other ways to get cash you need, like taking out a loan or saving up for a purchase, but um, building up an emergency fund is also a good thing to do so you don't have to tap into your retirement. Yeah, there's a great chart that I have used in the past uh, for educational purposes on the topic of taking money out of your 401k, like taking a 401k loan. Mm -hmm. and, and you know this very well, Taylor. You know, what we see a lot is the perception by individuals is, well, I'm taking a loan from myself and I'm mm -hmm. paying myself back interest, so I'm really not harming myself. Mm -hmm. And when you look at some of the hypotheticals that show um, the real effects of it, people are forgetting that you're losing out on the compounding effect exactly. of not having all that money in the market for upwards of five years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mark was talking earlier about some of those really good times in the market. You know, we're statistically coming out of a very poor period in the market. And so if I'm looking at statistics, there are most likely brighter days ahead in the near future, the next mm -hmm. couple of years. And if you're taking larger, you know, 401k loans with the premise of paying yourself back and you're thinking that's not going to harm you, it, it, it does. And mm -hmm. we, we've seen that. Yeah, it's the opportunity you're missing out on. That's right. It's not that you're taking a pay cut per se, but you're missing out on that opportunity, opportunity cost. Yeah. And I also see too, um, maybe somebody leaves a job and instead of rolling over their 401k, they they'll just cash, cash it, it out. out. I do see that. Yep. Not a ton, but more than I'd like to. Yes. Um, and people, you know, ask me about that and I'm like, no, like roll that over into a new plan or an IRA. Yeah, consolidate a new and, plan, move it to an IRA. There's a lot of mm -hmm. options. If you got over 5,000, they can't force you to move it out of there. There's a lot of mm -hmm. options. You know, the thing that comes to mind is people that work in the public sector, you know, they pay into these uh, pensions, right? Mm -hmm. And then let's say they go back into the private sector. You know, I get a lot of, you know, oh, I just, I didn't have much years paid into it, so I cashed it out. I usually give words of, of caution there. Hey, if there's any chance you might go back in the public sector, you need to do a lot more homework on that because buying those credits back in your older years are crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. That's another area where I provide a little more caution that they need to do their homework. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For sure. And I see, sometimes I even see it with young people too. You know, maybe they had, before they got their adult job, yep. they had a 401k at, an employer they worked for in college or whatever, and they'll just cash cash the whole thing out. Yeah, I know. Like I know the industry's changing now, and I know a lot of firms will, you know, um, m make sure they put policies and procedures in place where um, individuals that are client facing, you know, are making sure they are educating that client on what all their options are. It's not just mm -hmm. hey, move the money to me, X Y Z advisor, though that's one of the options. You know, mm -hmm. spending time and educating them on what all their options are. Because a lot of times people think, well, I can't keep my money in that plan. Yeah. And if you have over 5000 and the plan's not terminating, mm -hmm. yeah, you can keep your money in that plan. Yeah. Or maybe people also don't think it's a big deal to, like, cash it out because maybe it's... 10000 or 20000 it It's It's a smaller amount. It's not hundreds of thousands. Yes. But 
makes a really big difference, especially if you're young. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I get it. All right, before we end the financial planning topic officially, anything else you'd like to add? Um, nope, that was it. I'm sure there's more regrets than just these oh, three. Oh, I'm sure there <laughs> I is. I feel like those were the most These are nice high-level ones. I like these. These mm -hmm. are good. Well, I don't have anything else. Uh, we're going to be recording the podcast next Thursday is going to be our recording date, which was going to be the 29th. So that's going to be our next recording date. Uh, beyond that, uh, I'm looking forward to turning the calendar to 23 mm -hmm. and uh, hoping the market uh, is a lot more friendly uh, than it was in uh, 2022. But uh, we'll end it there. Uh, so thank you for joining me, Taylor and Mark in episode 181 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We will see you next Thursday for the taping of 182. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.